Well, it is good to have Pastor Bob Mitchell here with us. We certainly enjoyed his ministry to us and looking forward to what he has for us this morning. So, brother, you come and preach to us. Thank you again, Pastor. I'm glad you got this thing going, brother, because you said I might have to exert more energy. I can't. <laughs> you notice you notice how I lean on the pulpit continually. That's because of arthritis, my hips and so on. Oh, my. They had me a couple Sundays ago preaching from one of these music stands. You don't want to lean on them. I, I actually had to go over here to the side and get a stable chair and bring it over so I could lean that way on it. It got painful. But anyway, praise the Lord. Pastor Bobby, I got wind that he told the preacher boys, you stand up behind the pulpit, you know, and you don't be like Dad. So he told him, don't be like Dad and lean on the pulpit. <laughs> uh, he knows I have to. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter number 6. Hebrews chapter number 6. And uh, I want to thank you for having us and putting up with me this week. It's really been a joy. I love to see all of you. I love you. I pray for you. Faithfully. You pray for those whom you love, and you know if you pray for folks, you love them. You begin to love them. Like a missionary saying he has, he's not been to the field yet, but he's been called, and he has a great love for the people wherever. Not really. I mean, not until you get there and you meet them and you pray for them and you, and you develop a love. But I know what they're saying. I'm not being critical. But I pray for you folks and I do love you and I thank the Lord for your love and your kindness and all the help that you've been to Mrs. Mitchell and me over the years. It's been a blessing to know you. Hebrews chapter number 6 and let me pray, and then we'll look at a verse, and then some of this passage. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the good Sunday school hour, and thank you that we're able to meet together during this service, and we pray that you'd bless the preaching of the Word, especially now. I pray that you would empower me, that you might receive glory in your church. I pray, please make this passage clear to us. And as I commit my way to you, establish my thoughts, please, Lord. I know you will. I can claim that. I pray meet needs, touch hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Hebrews chapter number 6. Now, look at verse number 9. The apostle says, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. 
Now, before we dig into verse 9 and focus on it, we need to consider the context in which the verse is written. Back in chapter number 5, Paul admonished those to whom he wrote this letter by pointing out that they were still immature in the faith. As a matter of fact, he said of them in, uh, in verse number 11 of that chapter that they were dull of hearing. The idea seems to be that there was a time when they had been more serious and aspired to hear and to learn the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were now showing less desire to learn. They had become sluggish. They were dull to hear and to learn. Now, this can happen to believers. We can become sluggish. But it's something that we need to definitely continually guard against. Becoming sluggish and becoming dull of hearing. What I'm proposing is that some believers are no longer enthusiastically devoted to hear Bible preaching and teaching. They used to be, but they're no longer enthusiastic about learning their Bibles. Perhaps they're no longer as passionate to read and study their Bibles at home as they used to be. Maybe that's you, I don't know. When they were first enlightened, there was a great excitement about the things of God, and they couldn't drink in enough. But having learned the basics of Bible doctrine, they have, over a period of time, become sluggish, complacent. They have become dull of hearing, Paul says. And as a result of this, when they ought to be teaching others, they themselves have need to be taught. Verse 12 of chapter 5 says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now we come to chapter number 6, and Paul writes, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Now, get this. In order to understand this letter, you must know that it was written to Jews. Many of them were believers. However, there were some who had not been convinced that Jesus was the Christ and had not believed on him unto salvation. So some of these Jews in this assembly were believers, but some had not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were assembling with the others. They were listening to the gospel being preached, but they had not yet been born again. They were learning, and they had been captivated by Bible teaching, but they had not yet capitulated to it. That's where they were. By that I mean that they were enamored by that which they were being taught, but they had not truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been born again. Hence, they were at risk of eventually forsaking the assembly and returning to Judaism. That's what 10 chapter, or chapter 10, verse number 25 is about. Not forsaking the assembling. Now there may be some here today, or somebody here today, who's in that same condition. 
you have been captivated by Bible teaching and preaching and have even conformed outwardly to much of it, and you have enjoyed the fellowship of this church, but the truth is that it's only reached your head, not your heart. Therefore, you're at risk of walking away from the truth. Hence, eventually forsaking the Lord Jesus and his church. Pastor talked, I think, in Sunday school this morning about some who walked away over a period of time. Why? When I pastored in Pennsylvania for years, we had folk who walked away. Some would walk away from time to time. Same happened in Laconia, New Hampshire when we started a church there. Over a period of time, different folk would walk away. They'd sit there and hear the preaching and teaching. They may even have made a profession of faith, but in time they turned and walked away. That's happened in Brunswick, where we are, with several different people over the years. That's a sad thing. But what I'm saying to you is that if it's only reached your head and not your heart, you are at risk of walking away from the truth at some point, hence forsaking the Lord and his church. God forbid that you would ever do such a thing as that. And you should fear such a thing, and you should pray to God that you would never be one of those who eventually walks away. But back to these Jews to whom the epistle was written. These people in this particular church had learned that the ceremonies of the law pointed to Jesus Christ. Jews. They learned that all those ceremonies pointed to Jesus Christ. They had learned that the performance of those prescribed rituals typified the Lord Jesus and his redemptive work. And they had learned that he fulfilled the law and became their sacrifice for sin. Furthermore, they had learned that one is justified freely by his grace, by believing on him. But now they've become dull of hearing. They were not moving on to perfection. In other words, they were in a rut and they were not growing and maturing in spiritual things. They had learned those doctrines which Paul mentions in verses 1 and 2, but beyond that they had not grown. Then in verse 3 the apostle says, And this will we do, moving on, he's talking about, and this will we do if God permit. The idea here is with God's approval, we are going to leave the basics of the gospel and move on to some other great truths which will encourage growth and move you towards spiritual maturity and on to perfection. It's interesting to me that Paul says, this will we do. If God permit, even we preachers had to be careful to lead and to preach and to teach what God permits. Because nothing good will ever be accomplished if we operate in the flesh and just do what we want to do or teach or preach what we want to teach and preach. Nothing good ever comes from anyone. Serving out of the will of God and doing things without God's permission. It always ends up a problem when it's that way. So this will we do if God permit, Lord willing. 
Look at verse number 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Here, as one expositor puts it, quote, the writer shifts to the worst case scenario. In other words, he proposes here that some have apostatized. They've not just lost some of their zeal for the truth, nor have they simply stumbled, that is, been overtaken in a fault. If they'd been overtaken in a fault, then they might be restored by the help of them which are spiritual, as the Bible gives instruction. But they have turned away from Christ and do not desire anything. These have turned away from Christ and don't desire anything to do anymore with Bible Christianity. They may go someplace else where there's another form of Christianity and where they worship some Hollywood type of Jesus, but not the true Lord. These are those who have heard the gospel and have seen the hand of God at work in the lives of others. Why, they may have even experienced the convincing influence of the Holy Spirit's work in their own lives, but they eventually say no to God and walk away. Somebody said that the essence of apostasy is knowing the truth and yet turning away from it. I cannot begin to tell you how grave a matter that is, how fraught with danger it is to turn and walk away from God by rejecting His great salvation offered through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have been taking in the truth, and for some time now you have been pondering which way to go, thinking perhaps that maybe you need to repent and receive Christ, or thinking of walking away, I want to tell you you're on thin ice. You're hanging by a thread over hell, and any one of a million things could happen to cause your death, and plunge you into the dark regions of the damned. You're hanging by a thin thread. Also, the Lord Jesus could come. And if you've heard the gospel and understood it, and the tribulation began, you'd be left here in the tribulation for the tribulation period, and you would be sent a strong delusion, the Bible teaches, and believe a lie because you've already heard and understood the gospel. And then only in the end to be cast into the lake of, the, of fire forever damned. I'm telling you, it's a serious matter. So what I'm saying to you today is that you need to choose life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus and he will save you. You know what he said? He said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. This simply means that if you will turn to him, he will not turn you away. I've had a lot of people over the years turn me away. You may knock on a door and people greet you and you got a gospel tract in your hand, they want you to get out of here and close the door on you. But the Lord Jesus says to you that if you'll come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. I will not turn you away is the idea. In other words, he will receive you, he will save you, 
And you may say, but pastor, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who you are, what you've done. If you'll come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, he will receive you. He will save you. He will cast your sins behind his back, no matter how horrible they are. Why, you've seen the list in the letter he wrote to the Corinthians. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you see, he saved them and he washed them in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the point the letter was written, they were saved people. And if you'll come to him, he'll save you. I don't care what you've been involved in in your life. If you come in repentance and faith, you'll be saved. Received by the Lord Jesus. He promises it. Now in verse 7 it says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that oft cometh upon it, that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now here Paul illustrates what he's been saying. And he uses nature to clarify his point. When he speaks of the earth in verse number 7, he's talking about the ground or the soil. Also when he mentions the rain in that same verse, he's referring to the blessing of God. So there are two types of soil in his illustration here. The one is fruitful, bringing forth herbs, meat, which means fit or useful, herbs as vegetables, fit or useful for them by whom it is dressed, or the husbandman, the farmer. The other ground is unfruitful. It doesn't bear herbs. It bears thorns and briars. It doesn't produce that which is fit or useful to the husbandman, who in this illustration is God. So the idea here of the earth drinking in the rain is that the grace of God in the form of the gospel of Jesus Christ is received by men and some of them bring, uh, believe and bring forth fruits of righteousness. Fruits meet for repentance while others who hear the gospel bear thorns and briars and are rejected by God and his church and in the end are burned. God teaches all they're fit for in the end is to be burned. Isn't that something? These may even make a profession of faith in Christ, but they're not godly and they don't desire to be. And in the end, they turn away from God and they're only fit to be burned. Now we come to our text found in verse number 9. But beloved, he says, we are persuaded better things of you. Get that? We're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So Paul essentially says here, but I am confident that you have not apostatized and that you are not thorn bearing, nigh unto cursing and condemned to be burned. He expresses that he is confident that these to whom he is writing are not in the same category as those mentioned in the preceding verses. To the contrary, he observes in these people to whom he is writing the things that accompany salvation. Look at verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forgive 
to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. In other words, God was aware of their work, which sprang from a love for him, and their love was manifested in their ministering to the saints. And this coincides with what Paul says in Galatians 6.10, where he says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. These people ministered to the Lord's people for the Lord's sake. Loving God's people and ministering to God's people supplements salvation. That is, it is something that accompanies salvation. Something that is linked to salvation is the idea. Like an engine going down the railroad tracks, several cars are linked to it. And you have a train. There are things that are linked to salvation that come along with it. Then he says in verse 11, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So now we look back at verse number 9, and I want us to consider some things that accompany salvation. Paul has mentioned their work in ministering to the Lord's people for the Lord's sake, and I want to mention some other obvious applications. And just as Paul's statement in verse 10 was not meant to cover all things that accompany salvation, neither do I mean to do that this morning, but a few. The truth is that I'm not uh, mentally uh, that mentally acute to list them all, but I'll list a few. I would suggest a couple of very obvious things which accompany salvation. Number one, a demonstration of repentance. Things that accompany salvation. If a person is saved by the grace of God, if they've been regenerated by the power of the Spirit of God, there will be a demonstration. If they've repented and received Christ, there will be a demonstration of that repentance. Now, some independent Baptists, preachers, many across this country, reject the necessity of preaching repentance to the lost. And they maintain that repentance is somehow, somehow it becomes a work, and that to promote repentance is to promote a work's salvation. In other words, you have to repent in order to be saved, so that's a work. That's crazy. Repentance and faith are inseparable. Consider this. John the Baptist preached repentance. Now, John the Baptist was a New Testament preacher. Not an Old Testament prophet. He was a New Testament preacher. The Bible says that the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. Luke 16, 16. Now, the meaning of the word until signifies up to the time of, but not including. It signifies before. So the law and the prophets were before John. You mothers might have some kids playing in the yard in the the, uh, summertime, and they want to continue playing, and you tell them, all right, you can play until supper time. At 6 o'clock, we're going to have supper. Then you need to be in. 
What do you mean? You mean they can play up until sex, not past sex at all. They can play before sex, but at 6 o'clock, supper begins. So the law and the prophets were until John. With John, we have New Testament preaching. Now, what did John preach? He's a New Testament preacher. What did he preach? The Bible says that he preached repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He preached a message of repentance. He baptized those who obeyed in order to show that they had repented. And then we have the Lord Jesus. He came and was baptized of John to fulfill all righteousness. And when he began his public ministry, he demanded that men repent what Jesus preached. It says from that time Jesus began to preach and to say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Also Jesus told the twelve to preach repentance. In Mark 6 12 it says and they went out and preached that men should repent. And then after the resurrection and our Lord's ascension back to heaven Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and preached to those people the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, relating to them that they had put the Messiah to death. They had crucified the Son of God. And the Bible says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's Acts chapter number 2, 37 and 38. To repent means to turn from sin to God. Bible repentance is a change of heart which results in a person essentially doing a full about face as he turns from sin and embraces the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and begins to walk with God. Instead of against God. So repentance and faith are inseparable, as I said, with relation to one's salvation. They're inseparable. In other words, any person who truly repents and believes on Christ is changed from the inside out as all things become new. His thinking, the one who repents and receives Christ, his thinking... His attitude, his values, his behavior, his associations, all these things are changed. He becomes a different person than the one that he was. Those old things and ways are relinquished and the ways and things of God are embraced by a person who has been born again and is now in Christ. Now I'm not saying, and I think this is important to state, I'm not saying that a person is, uh, who, who is saved, who gets saved, is immediately sanctified to the degree that every sin, every vice, and every unbiblical habit is gone the moment they're saved. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. He has things to learn. And he learns what the Bible teaches, and as he does, he desires to be rid of those old things, to add the things that are biblical. It's called progressive sanctification. In Psalm 119, 105, the Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I would illustrate that by saying perhaps we're walking in a dark forest in the middle of the night. It's pitch dark and we, we have a flashlight, some kind of a lamp, and as we shine it on the path, and that's what you do, you're following a little trail through the woods. You, you don't shine it out there amongst the trees. You shine it where you're walking because there might be a tree root over the path or there might be a rock or something else in the way that you're going to trip on and you're going to fall flat. You may get hurt. And so you hold that light down there and as you take a step, the light moves ahead for you. And you come, let's say, to a, uh, to a rock, something you would have tripped over and maybe broken an arm or something, and, and you step over it and you put it behind you. You deal with it. And that's the way it is with salvation. You get saved and God exposes something in his word. And you deal with it. And you move forward. And, and then God, as you study your Bible and you hear preaching and so on, God exposes something and you deal with it. I say that because I've heard evangelists in the past talk about, you know, somebody or maybe they themselves got gloriously saved and talk as if they were completely sanctified and didn't have anything to deal with from then on. No, it's progressive. It was for me, and I know it was for you. So we learn here that when a person is truly born again, there will be good fruit produced, not thorns and briars, but the things that accompany salvation. The idea here is that there are certain things which are linked to salvation. Number two, there will be a desire to follow Christ. This is linked to salvation. When somebody gets saved, there's a desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, we could accurately say that a desire to follow Christ is the demonstration of true repentance and salvation. Following him is conclusive evidence of Bible repentance. Now, as I have said, repentance is the changing of one's mind which results in a change of direction. Bible repentance involves a total reorientation of a person's life. Before I was saved, I was headed down that broad road of destruction toward hell. I was walking contrary to the word of God. Then I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and I turned and, as it were, I fell on my face before God and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and began to walk in the opposite direction. I began to follow him. Now the Lord Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's John ten twenty seven. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. My sheep follow me. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. We who know the Lord obey him as Lord and we follow him wherever he leads. And even more than that, as we follow him, we seek to imitate him. We want to imitate our Lord. My great desire and my prayer is to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ and less like me. You didn't have to say that. Less like Bob Mitchell. <laughs> but it is. I'm going to be more like the Lord Jesus and less like Bob Mitchell. 
I hope it's your great desire to be more like the Lord and less like yourself. In Ephesians 5, Paul wrote, Be therefore, verse 1, followers of God as dear children. Followers. It's from a Greek word, mimetes, from, from which we get imitators or mimic, be followers of God. Now, think about this. Paul wrote those words, didn't he? But they were given to him by inspiration of God. So as pastor was talking about in Sunday school, they are the words of God. My point is this. It's, it's not just Paul that wants us to be imitators of God. God wants us to imitate him. God wants us to imitate his son. God wants us to be like him, like our father. Little boys like to be like their daddies. They like to imitate their daddies. A little Christian I was talking about last night, he was standing by me one day in church, and I'm holding his hand, and his dad comes by to go down the hall to do something. He's with a security detail, and they were having a meeting or something, and little Christian looks at his dad and watches him go by. Then he looks up at me, and he says, that's my daddy. <laughs> that's my daddy. Then his dad brings him over to the house, and his dad's putting together a bookcase for Mrs. Mitchell. And uh, he's got his drill and his screwdrivers and all those things he needs, a hammer. And Christian will watch him, and when he uses a screwdriver, Christian will get his. thing about that big and about that fat, and it's plastic. And he'll work on a screw that's already in there. So he's putting it in there. He watches his dad. And then when his dad gets a hammer, he grabs and gets his little plastic hammer. His dad pounds on something. Christian will pound for a while. He wants to imitate his daddy. We should want to imitate our Heavenly Father. We should want to imitate his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We should desire not to do anything evil. When we do evil things, such as those listed in Ephesians 5, 3, and 4 before that, passage, uh, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking and jesting. When we do those kinds of things, we're imitating Satan. We're not imitating God, we're imitating Satan. You see, Satan rebelled against God and all evil practices, rebellion against God. Now then, in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're going to follow him. He said, take up his cross. Deny himself and take up his cross. Over 50 years ago, I began to obey these words. As it were, one evening, we were having special meetings. I got there early that night. I was under such sore conviction. It was an auditorium, something like this, the pastor's office. No, it was over here on this side, a door like that one. It was a half an hour more before the service, and I knocked on the door, and I heard the pastor say, come in. And when I opened the door, there were a few deacons and old Ken Crawford all there on their knees, 
And uh, I didn't know I'd interrupted the prayer meeting before church. Pastor said, is there something I can do for you, Bob? I just broke out in tears. And I said, yeah, i got to get right with God. I said, there have been things in my life I've been running, things I've been holding on to. And i got to get right. And, and you know what I did when I got down on my knees with them and I repented of those things? I, in essence, stepped back and looked at myself and said, Bob Mitchell, I'm denying you. We are not following you anymore. We're going to follow Jesus Christ. I denied myself. Now, I did that on that night once for all, but I have to deny myself. I mean, that, that was in general. But I do have to deny myself every day of my life and take up my cross and follow the Lord Jesus. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And with reference to that phrase, take up his cross, John Gill says that that means cheerfully receive and patiently bear every affliction and evil, however shameful and painful it may be, which is appointed for him, and he is called unto, which is his peculiar cross, as every Christian has his own, to which he should quietly submit and carry with an entire resignation to the will of God. So among those things linked to salvation, those things that accompany salvation, is a desire to follow Christ, which itself involves some things. One of those things is a desire to confess the Lord Jesus Christ publicly by believers' baptism and consequently be united with the New Testament Baptist Church, one of his churches. Jesus said, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So believers are to be baptized. Jesus said so. Teach all nations, make disciples of all peoples, and baptize them. So we need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in believers' baptism and be united with a New Testament church of Christ. And then another thing is a desire for spiritual food and drink. This is linked to salvation. When I got saved, I couldn't drink in enough. I couldn't get enough of the Word of God. I couldn't get enough preaching. I couldn't get enough Bible teaching. I couldn't get enough reading the Bible and trying to find out what God is saying to me. I needed nourished spiritual food and drink. Little babies that are born of uh, uh, naturally of the flesh, mothers can tell you they desire nourishment right out of the womb. Fathers, can, I can tell you that too because many, many, many times Mrs. Mitchell would have to get up and go take care of the baby. Just disturb my sleep and then I'd go back to sleep. But I got saved and I desired nourishment. Saved people do. We've been born of God and we desire His Word. And then there's a desire for fellowship with God's people. A desire to fellowship with God's people and meet with God's people to worship our God. And where do we find that fellowship? In the house of God. 
the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, right here in his ecclesia, his assembly. We find that fellowship and we are able to worship God with God's people. And if you're walking in the Spirit, you greatly desire to meet with God's people in order to fellowship with them and worship God with them. You love them, 1 John 3, 14. You love them and your desire is to be with God's people. Then the last that I'll mention is a desire to win others to Christ. This is linked to salvation, I believe. We desire to see others saved. It says in John 1, verse 3, beginning at verse 35, Again the next day John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God! And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted master, Where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Saved people have a desire to bring. Saved people who are walking in the Spirit have a desire to bring others to the Lord Jesus. Well, I know when I got saved on that night in 1968, I, I had that desire, and you've heard me in this church tell about it before. I went to this preacher's house with Mrs. Mitchell. Now, she was Miss Harding then. Well, I'm glad she changed it to Mrs. Mitchell. Oh, 54 years here in a few months. It's been so wonderful for me. <laughs> uh, but we went there, Miss Harding and me, because we wanted to talk to the preacher. I'd only met him maybe once or twice. Uh, my folks went to church twice a year. was about it, Christmas and Easter. But uh, we went down to the parsonage and had an appointment with him. We went in. I thought we'd be there 15 minutes, half an hour at the most. I mean, will you marry us and set a date? Boy, was I fooled. We were there for, I don't know, two and a half, three hours, I think, until almost 11 in the evening. I thought we'd get out of there quick because we were headed for Mangiolardo's. Best garlic pizza in the world and really good salads, and you'd know you'd want to head for Mangiolardo's too. But anyway, the preacher kept me there all that time. You, you know what happened? God had another motive. And he was answering my prayer. When I was nine or ten years old, out on my parents' front lawn, a dark night, the stars were bright. And I looked up into the stars and I said what I was taught to say. First star I saw, I said, starlight, star bright. That's no more than praying to the stars, praying to heavenly bodies. But then when I got done, nine or ten years old, I asked God to show me if he was real or not. I was, I was asking God to reveal himself to me. 
I was concerned about this thing, really concerned in my heart. And since no one, no man seeketh after God, God had started a work in my heart somehow. I think I'd heard preaching that probably stirred my heart before that. My heart was stirred. I looked up into the heavens. And I asked God to reveal himself to me. And I did some silly things after that. Asking God, do this if you're real, do that. God didn't do any of those stupid things. But he sent a gospel preacher to the town. And that guy that night was all not, not all that interested in our marriage ceremony that we wanted to have. He was interested in my soul. And he gave me the gospel. He preached to me for at least a couple hours, maybe three. And on that night, God revealed himself to me through his word. And that's how he does it, by the preaching of the gospel through his word. And I got saved that night, and I became concerned for others. If you're saved and walking with the Lord, you're concerned for others. Oh, I was so excited because... I could get up on Saturday morning and certainly my parents will want to know this new truth. They probably never heard of this, but Jesus will save them. Oh, they got excited, all right. (laughs) But it wasn't the way I'd hoped. They were excited against it. And others, my friends, my sister, nobody wanted it. Within my family. But I tried to get them to Jesus. And then you know later I. As I grew and we were baptized and joined the church. And through the years we heard. About faith promise. And we got a burden for people. Not only our family and our friends and those around us. But people. In other lands, billions of people out there who've never heard the gospel. I mean, never never heard a clear-cut presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many who've never heard his name don't know anything about it, and they need to be saved. And I got a burden for that. And we began to give. Matter of fact, I said all through the years that if God told me to go to India right now, I'd go. And he'd do it through the church. I was talking, I think, to pastor the other day that that, uh, these missions conferences that independent Baptists have where people come and say, God called me and announced to the church, God called me to India. Or God called me to uh, prepare to be a pastor. Well, now, wait a second. You ever hear anybody, and this is the way Bobby puts it, you ever hear anybody stand up and say, God called me to be a deacon? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. The church is involved in it. God called me to sing solos. No. No. It, it all goes, it's all channeled through the church. And so it is with a call to be a missionary, a pastor, or whatever. You see, in Acts 13, the men fasted and prayed, and the Holy Ghost spoke and said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul. So there will be fasting and praying in the 
the church will recognize, the pastor will recognize that this guy is to be a missionary or this guy is to prepare for some kind of ministry, whatever it might be. But you don't get on board just by announcing, I'm called to do something. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's, that's just not biblical. But I was willing to go if God wanted me anywhere in the world and the church recognized it and would tell me to go, I'd be willing to go. And I'm doing what, right now, what in my so-called retirement years the church has told me to do. They've commissioned me to do this. But my point is you're concerned for souls. And so you do everything you can through faith promise. You witness here at home and you give through your faith promise to support those who will go and you pray for them. You not only give financially, but it'd be a crime against them, a sin against them if you didn't pray for them. We're talking about this in Sunday school. We're stewards. I don't own anything. Remember that? I've taught that here. I don't own anything. I'm a steward. Everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell there. Everything is God's. I'm just a steward of what he allows me to possess, so I don't own, I possess. And then I'm going to have to give an account to him. And I thought this morning during Sunday school of that steward who was called in by his master and he said I've heard you wasted my goods you know what the idea there is he lived lavishly that's how he wasted them things that weren't needed and so on I think America is full of Christians like that we have things that aren't really necessary aren't needed and I'm not saying that God doesn't allow us some things he does and we're very comfortable. But we need to be careful not to waste, not to live lavishly, purchasing and, and getting things that God doesn't approve of just because we want them, we desire them. We need to be careful. And I do give in order to get. When it comes to others' giving, because Jesus said, Given it shall be given unto you. I sometimes get the order mixed up. Given it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Something like that. Men will give into your bosom. So I give in order to get. Not so that I can have more in that context of giving to others, but to give more. Give in order to get so you can give more. And in faith promise, God does that. I've seen it all through the years. And I give and give and give. And God gives and I give more and God gives more and I give more. 